Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. The president asked a foreign government to investigate his political rival. The president withheld vital military funds from that government to press it to do so. The president delayed funds for an American ally at war with Russian invaders. The president's purpose was personal. Corrupting an election to keep oneself in office is perhaps the most abusive and destructive violation of one's oath of office that I can imagine. But I want to talk to you about what's happened with the Republican Party. Um, there is no Republican Party. There's a Trump Party. The Republican Party is kind of taking a nap somewhere. The first voice you heard was that of U.S. Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, delivering a speech in which he explained his vote to convict President Donald Trump of abuse of power in Trump's impeachment trial. The second voice featured was that of former Republican House Speaker John Boehner, who was suggesting that the Republican Party has changed to such an extent that it's simply Trump's party now. And the fact that Romney was the only Republican senator to vote to convict Trump is consistent with that notion. But just how has the Republican Party changed recently? When did these recent changes begin? And what have the effects been of those changes? I recently discussed these questions with political scientists Julia Azari and Seth Maskett. Azari is at Marquette University, and her research interests include the American presidency, American political parties, and the politics of the American state. Maskett is at the University of Denver, and his research interests include American politics, political parties, and polarization. They've both contributed to 538 and the Mischiefs of Faction blog. Our discussion began with a focus on changes in the Republican Party and how those changes may have affected the Democratic Party, including reducing Democrats' incentive to address the interests of certain factions and to sharpen their arguments. I share that conversation now in this episode, which is titled Married to the Mob. My understanding of, of the literature on this particular question is more to do with the, the ways in which uncivil discourse or party as identity have, have decreased um, in a sort of democratic, I don't know, democratic discourse. These are all like the buzzwords of this academic subfield. Um, I don't know that anyone has really talked about this, the cost that you're talking about, which is that the parties can, can sort of compete on non-issue things, um, and specifically can compete on the notion of how they treat, um, democratic norms and democratic values and the kind of commitment to the way you, you treat your opponent kind of thing that, um, that 
takes the place of a more substantive issue debate. I do think that's right. I mean, I think that the one thing you might see if the Republican Party conducted itself differently is that Democrats would have to deal with, for example, the, the sort of contradiction that they have right now between a kind of more centrist status quo oriented faction in the party, uh, which often is, is very friendly with um, powerful economic interests with this more leftist pro-worker um, populist vision within the party. They really have to, they really have to contend with that more, I think. And, think about the kind of logical conclusions of a center left ideology under different conditions. And as it is, they don't really have to do that. They just have to kind of say, well, we're not the people who are tweeting in all caps with a bunch of misspellings um, or standing at state houses with rifles. And I know that those, those behaviors and positions don't characterize all Republicans, but they characterize enough elected Republicans to make it a pretty powerful, um, I think pretty powerful talking point for Democrats. And I just want to make sure that I'm clear on the on on what you're saying there. Is it that the can you explain why why is it that uh, the or how is it that the presence of this uh, extremist uh, faction that is showing up at state houses with rifles, as well as elected officials who are not within the Republican Party who are not condemning uh, those folks, but if anything, with a wink and a, and, and a, and a, a nod, uh, saying maybe I'm actually, uh, with those folks, how is it that their presence makes it so that that center left faction within the Democratic Party doesn't have to contend with the populist wing? I don't understand how that works. I guess my, my point is like, I think this is why there's not more political science on this because there's several there's several leaps in the chain. But I guess my point is that that makes for enough of an election claim for them, right? Is look, we're not these people. And so that, that allows you to sort of keep your coalition together. You don't have to promise things to people that are necessarily all that concrete. You just have to kind of promise not to be that. And it's not totally obvious how well that worked. I mean, I think that was to some extent Hillary Clinton's strategy in 2016. Um, and then people debate about what 2018 meant. But I think that it just, it makes for a very, like parties in our system basically function on this very minimal coalitional glue. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Republicans make that, I think, relatively easy for Democrats and take up a lot of, a lot of air, right? A lot of time and space that isn't then spent, you know, pressing on how the different commitments of the Democratic Party might actually fit together or how different visions can be reconciled about what the party could be. So if I'm the kind of either Democrat or independent who might find someone like Bernie Sanders appealing and might otherwise gravitate toward him, I swing in the direction by this logic of someone like Biden because I see him as someone who, who can ensure that at least Trump's not elected again, at least uh, Trump's uh, right-wing enablers are not elected again in the Senate. Is that is that the idea? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm going to let Steph talk, I think. There's a broader literature within comparative politics, within democratic theory, that's, that's a little outside the stuff I normally work with, but I've, I've been, you know, I found some of this very influential over the last few years, you know, particularly thinking of like Ziblatt and Levitsky's book, How Democracies Die. Um, I, I taught that last year, and 
you know, they, they talk about one of the one of the basic values or norms within a functioning democracy is uh, for one party to see the other as legitimate, um, to, you know, to view it as having its own legitimate stake in the political system. Um, and if you fail that, that's how you move toward authoritarianism, um, where, you know, it's, it's no longer a battle of ideas. It's simply we rule or, um, or you know, or, or terrible things happen. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you could see, you know, there were times in, even in the United States' own history where, you know, there were, you know, would-be authoritarians who sought party, major party nominations for the presidency, and the parties basically said, we're not interested in that. Um, uh, you know, whether you're talking about like Henry Ford or um, uh, Charles Lindbergh or, or others, uh, they, you know, they were basically just sort of screened out. and. Um, you know, at least one of our parties has, has sort of lost that screening mechanism or has, or is not interested in using it right now. Um, and that is, you know, I, I, I see that as very problematic because once, you know, when you have that, when you're operating within those boundaries, um, one party's arguments can be used by the other party to sharpen its own arguments. That basically, you know, if, if one is making an argument about we believe this, why this economic theory will improve the lives of most Americans, or we believe why this this idea for social welfare will be better, um, the other party has to come up with different arguments. And operating within that framework, um, it can actually sharpen arguments. It can, you know, essentially make for a good grounds for voter competition in which everyone more or less buys the idea that this is a legitimate competition. Um, and when you're operating outside that, um, there, there really isn't a good argument, you know, a response to you should be in jail other than no, I shouldn't be in jail. Um, and then you're arguing that or, or no, actually you should be in jail. And that, you know, then you're not really having a democratic argument. Then elections aren't really about ideas anymore. Elections are simply about who rules and, and who is subservient. Um, that's that's problematic, and I think we're. It's not just dangerous. It's like we're we're legitimately in that area now. Um, the president was actually using that kind of rhetoric this morning um, on TV, talking about why uh, Barack Obama and and Joe Biden uh, should be in prison, um, which is back to where we were in you know at this point in 2016, and it's it's a it's a dangerous area to to be in. Right. Yeah, I was just, I was, just lo- I was just looking at uh, Trump's uh, Twitter feed, and uh, two hours ago, the t- uh, one tweet is quote. If I were a senator or a congressman, the first person I would call to testify about the biggest political crime and scandal in the history of the USA, by far, all, all caps, is former President Obama. He knew everything. Again, all caps. Uh, do it, tags, uh, Lindsey Graham. Just do it. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, no more talk. So very much set in line with uh, what you heard him saying uh uh, on TV, and it sounds as if Seth, you at least seem to um, agree with my unstated premise, which is over time recently, the Republican Party has been engaged less in that normal game of politics where you take the other party's legitimacy as a given and you're debating ideas. And something has changed in recent years. Uh, am, am I putting words? I want to go to Julia in a second, but Seth, am I putting words in your mouth? No, no. I that that's an accurate summary of what I'm thinking as well. That that, that seems to work for me. Um, and 
I wasn't necessarily sure that's the way this was going to play out as, you know, four years ago. Like I knew Trump was using that language. I wasn't sure where the rest of the party was, but they, uh, they seem to have largely bought into at least that kind of rhetoric. So what I'm understanding Seth and I to be agreeing on is that over the last four years, the Republican party has shifted from a, a manner of engagement with Democrats where the legitimacy of the Democratic Party is taken as a given, and you're arguing about ideas to something where the the form of engagement is not not about ideas so much as something like what we're seeing from Trump, where it's just the other party is illegitimate. Uh, the the former president uh, has been engaged in the big biggest political crime of all. And so this this normal game of arguing and debating ideas is not what the Republican Party is committed to in the way that it used to be. Yeah. So um, I would date I mean, I would date the specific phenomenon you're talking about into the Obama years. And I would actually put the point of change at at the 2010 um, uh, midterm elections. Uh, Sorry, we're at the point in the in the the quarantine where I can't remember. the basic terminology of my profession. So, right. So the midterm election 2010, that's really, I mean, I I hate to pin too much on the tea party. And I think many of these sorts of causal chains will be more clear with more time, but I do think that that's, I mean, the tea party movement was one that essentially kind of rejected moderate Republicanism, rejected the notion of compromise, and then linked that um, to the illegitimacy of the president which was rooted in both policy and in race, and then linked that to constitutional politics. And that's, I think, where we see a sea change both in rhetoric and also in who's in power, because at that point, you have an emergent Tea Party caucus that's later sort of morphs into the Freedom Caucus in the House. You get a buildup of, of such, um, sen- such uh, ideas in the Senate which is also where you get what I think is kind of the pivotal moment, Mitch McConnell refusing to bring um, Obama's Supreme Court nominee to the Mer- Merrick Garland. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, right, words. I'm, I once did this. So, But I actually want to add something here, which is that I don't think this is – I don't think 2010 came out of nowhere. Hmm. Um, I think you can build this strain into the sort of – the marriage of constitutional politics and religious politics in the Republican party, you can date that back into the seventies. What I want, what I want to draw a distinction with there then, and what's different about what's happening right now versus other moments, say in the Republican party since 1980, right. We sort of date this to the Reagan revolution um, is that now all of the sort of rawest elements of that, are in the presidency. And that makes a difference. It obviously had a huge impact when, when that was a piece of congressional Republican politics. But Mitch McConnell, powerful as he may be, is not the president. And that's a, that's a totally different thing. And I will also say Bush and Reagan, and Bush 41 and Bush 43, and Ronald Reagan, all of them drew support through these pieces of rhetoric and and drew on it and used it at certain times, but demonstrated a certain amount of restraint in the way that they talked about the political opposition. There were moments where we saw that breakdown under 
um, George W. Bush in different ways, and wartime made everything more complicated. Um, but with Trump, we really see like the full weight of the presidency brought into the religious, racial, and constitutional conflicts of that 1970s, 1980s turn in the Republican Party. So that's where. So that's my sort of complicated version of that history. I hope that made sense. I wonder if either of you has thoughts on the broader popular impact of Trump's more full-throated embrace of that religious, racial, uh, and constitutional rhetoric. And, And what I'm speaking to here is my, again, you're the professionals. I'm just an amateur political scientist. And so I'm basing this argument on intuition. But the idea, the worry is that those citizen militias showing up at capitals with their weapons are there in part because they feel emboldened by a chief executive who is engaged in this more full-throated use of such rhetoric. Does, Does that intuition of mine seem right to you? Um, I, I think that's right. And let me, you know, just to get at what, what Julia was saying before that, I mean, I, I agree with her, you know, her version of party history there. Um, I, you know, I, I agree, you know, 2016 didn't come out of nowhere. Um, there, there are long roots to what the party has been doing. I do think there was a substantial shift as a result of, of Trump's candidacy and Trump's presidency. Um, uh, you know, there, I, I don't think you saw the Republican Party speaking about using the justice system, for example, to to reward friends and punish enemies um, in a way be- before Donald Trump was doing this. Um, he, in, in many ways, sort of taught them how to talk on these questions. But, you know, getting to your question, and I, I also I don't think um, we saw, you know, prior to Trump's presidency, um, really fairly explicit encouragement um, at the presidential level for, um, uh, for basically for militant groups, um, to show up in, in city squares and in state capitals, um, and to, you know, essentially use in, in t- tactics of intimidation. I mean, this is not just, you know, your standard political protest. Um, I mean, so, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I just, yeah. uh, in agreement with that, Say what you will about George W. Bush. I just can't imagine him after something like what happened in Charlottesville coming out and saying there were good people on both sides. Yes, I, I would agree with that. And in, in fact, you know, even when um, uh, his party was, you know, kind of fanning the flames of war shortly after 9 11, um, something, you know, Bush made a very conscious choice to go and speak. Um, at a mosque and uh, spoke very openly and, and defensively of, of Islam and, you know, tried to distinguish his administration's policy responses um, from, uh, from bigotry, you know, and, and, you know, and, you know, we, we could talk about how, how effective that was and how much bigotry still existed. Um, but there was very much not giving in to, you know, sort of the worst tendencies, giving into mob mentality. Um, whereas this president not only, you know, has not made such comments, but he's actually moved in the other direction and, and specifically defended people who are doing that and encouraged them, um, to, you know, essentially actively resist state laws, um, and to demonstrate against their elected government, 
you know, while carrying automatic weapons. Um, this is, this is a, I think, a, a pretty new area. Uh, Julia would probably know better than I do if we've seen this sort of thing in, in earlier, more violent periods in American history. But, uh, you know, I guess going back to the 1850s in, in Kansas and Nebraska. Uh, but I'm not sure if there's, uh, you know, other similar um, examples of this. Yeah, I mean, that's probably someone who knows the 19th century would know better, but no, generally not. Generally, the I mean, I want to be clear that I think there are certainly examples of presidents letting this sort of thing happen for various reasons. And there are examples of presidents sort of like not letting people, you know, mo- mostly using the power of the state to denounce people protesting in peaceful ways. Um, and that's not a, a constant, but it's certainly um, certainly a recurring event. Um, the idea of encouraging it, like using using the power of a national platform um, to encourage it, is like a whole nother a whole nother situation. Um, I have. You know, I've been kind of thinking about those about these armed protests, uh, not least because there were a few not that far from me. Although they were they were not successful in uh, gathering people in the city of Milwaukee. I think they had eight people show up, but um, in some of the suburbs, and you know, Madison's not that far. Um, the you know, I've been thinking about that because on the one hand, I'm hearing from people who study comparative politics that it doesn't take that many people to have a kind of armed insurrection. And if you have some sympathy from law enforcement, that's what creates these sorts of situations. So that's like one strain of things I keep hearing. And I have heard that from some really smart, you know, comparativists, um, international relations scholars. And then among my friends who study American politics, we're also smart and, and greater in number. Um, we hear a lot of, uh, a lot of critique of, well, the media is over-covering these stupid protests of, you know, 10 idiots, right? And the vast majority of people are staying home. Or there is, you know, a scholar in um, some of our circles was tweeting about some protests that happened in Texas that were about the treatment of immigrants. You know, people are engaging in other kinds of political activity, far more people showing up um, in those situations. And yet these folks are just somehow like the media is just drawn to them um, like like moths to a flame, and and then I thought about it because, as you know, as you both know and are both sort of in the same situation, I kind of you know moonlight in the media, and I'm also drawn to these things in terms of talking about them. So why is that? Um, and I think part of it is just the story where it's like, oh, people are holding signs saying they want to get haircuts and carrying guns, and you know what I mean? Like it just it really does. It like it it checks off every box if you're thinking about you know writing an interesting story. So I'm not surprised that that's the case. But it is is two really dramatically different scholarly perspectives. One being like this is overcovered and we're we're giving these people too much attention to a thing that's not really that important. And the other being well, this is actually how armed insurgencies start. When I hear of state uh, legislators putting on uh, Kevlar vests to go into work when they otherwise wouldn't because 
the small number of protesters, unrepresentative though they might be, uh, has intimidated them to that point. Uh, it, at some level, it, it just offends my sensibilities. Uh, but also, I, I worry that it is a further, it will result in a further undermining of critical values such as the rule of law, uh, the idea that we submit ourselves uh, to the, the rule of law. And, and I know that in many of these states, uh, uh, you might have the ability under the law to carry a weapon to the state capitol, but there's something about that act that just seems to represent, or it seems to represent a kind of violation of a respect for. Uh, it's it's a kind of thumbing your nose at the at, at the rule of law, and I just worry about a potential erosion uh, of democratic norms, or such as the rule of law, when people presume that their individual right to express themselves however they want, no matter whom they intimidate and how they intimidate it, is sacred. I, I just, I, it leads me to worry that that kind of mindset uh, can threaten democratic norms. Uh, I mean, but here's, yeah, I, I think of this, I don't know, through, through some of the work I've done here at my university and some outreach I've done, I've gotten to know a number of state legislators here in Colorado, and I'm thinking more about them. I mean, obviously, Yes, they are representatives. They are also, you know, they're people. Um, They're people in their 30s and 40s, a lot of them, and they have young families and they get paid $30,000 a year to do this part-time gig. Um, It's, it's, you know, it's it's a good job, but it's not terribly glamorous. And I do wonder, um, my, my sort of democratic expectation is that if you have armed protesters trying to intimidate you, you push back on that. And you don't give in to that mentality. At the same time, it's very easy for me to say that when the, those guns are not being pointed at me. Um, and I sort of wonder at some point, yeah, you you know, you get into that line of work. You recognize that you're going to be criticized for decisions you make and you you, you take stances and you're, you're willing to live with that. When you feel like your life is being threatened, does that actually change votes? And I, I can't imagine it doesn't for some people. Um, and when people are casting votes, um, you know, to save their own lives, I don't see how that's consistent with democracy. Um, I, I, you know, I, I just, that just does not strike me as consistent with any sort of theory of representative democracy that we've at least, um, held ourselves to in this country. Um, that's, that strikes me as, uh, well, something else. Well, by definition, it's non-democratic if, if I get more of if I get more influence over my legislators because I show up with a gun than people who don't, that's clearly anti-democratic. But, but I'm sorry, Julie, you were jumping in. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is an interesting framework to think about this um, this question. I know there was a lot of talk about this after um, the Charlottesville incident in 2017 about kind of you know a, a protest where you have where you're expressing noxious ideas is the First Amendment. When, once you bring in the Second Amendment, you've you've changed everything, right? It's not a conversation then, even if it's, you know, a conversation about, as I said, just terrible, terrible ideas. Um, the, but it's different if there's weapons. And I think that logic applies here. I also think there's something, there's something about what, what Seth is saying and about what you're saying about a kind of social contract notion of, of governance where we submit to this authority so we can all live better collectively in theory that I think reveals like both the, both the overt logic, but then also like it's see me underbelly. Um, 
So, the, I mean, the overt logic there is kind of the logic of the Second Amendment, right? Which is that if you feel like the government has overstepped its bounds and is not being responsive to you through the normal channels, then you're allowed to, to bear arms, right? Or this is the logic that, that some people articulate around the, around the Second Amendment. And it's a logic that's never made me particularly happy, but also one that I can follow, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's one that fits in with a lot of conversations that you hear over the last couple of years in American politics about how people are resorting not so much to, to weapons, but to these sorts of extreme party positions or anti-institution party positions, pushing out the boundaries of our ideological conversations because they feel like the channels of democracy aren't working for them. So the fact that this is sort of, I think the outward logic actually uh, reveals the fact that this isn't like it reveals the ways in which that does not hold up to reality. So these are people um, who are linked up with a fair amount of political power. And one thing people have noted is the protesters are not the people who are frontline workers who've been laid off or who are starving or who are working for minimum wage. It's not totally obvious who they are, but their claim, at least I, I don't know, but their claims tend to be about being able to hire other people for services. And the logic of what's going on in the states in terms of reopening seems to be about preventing people from filing for unemployment, right? The, the whole thing has a sort of capitalist logic to it. And the kinds of people who are making these claims that they're not being listened to um, or who are talking about delegitimizing government authority are actually people, as far as I can tell, who have disproportionate amount of political power in a lot of ways relative to um for example you know people who live people who live in cities people of color um rural white folks just their votes just count more in terms of how we how we aggregate preferences in our our political system so and 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 consistent with that idea that they have power uh our reports i've heard that these protests have not been entirely organic but rather there's been there's been cross state coordination by pl- powerful political uh, organizations so it's a kind of astroturf phenomenon rather than truly uh, right. grassroots so not only are those individuals powerful but they are actually right. behind the scenes being coordinated by powerful organizations right i would probably feel differently if a kind of you know diverse group of laid off restaurant workers of a mixture of, you know, white, black, Latino workers from the cities were showing up with weapons saying the state legislature is not listening to our claims. And maybe that's just my, my bias, but that is how I see the situation. And I'm not saying I would condone what they're doing, but I would, I think, weigh it out differently. But instead what we have is this, is this gap between what the, what the overt political logic is and what seems to really be happening. And I think that's that's very dangerous because we have a sort of theatrical politics. So we've talked a bit at times about norms and values, and Julia, you just mentioned institutions. I wonder if if it were the case that the that elected Republican uh, officials began to engage less in the kind of Trumpist religious, racial, and constitutional rhetoric that we've seen, 
but actually began to uh, emphasize the value of institutions, to emphasize the importance of elected officials being accountable uh, to the press. Um, were that to happen, do you think that that would be – so were that to happen, would there be benefits in terms of uh, uh, reinforcing popular support for those same institutions uh, and norms if the Republican Party, uh, in, in particular elected officials, and I think I'm thinking at the national level, so senators, members of the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, if eventually there is a different Republican uh, president uh, down the road, is there any evidence? I suppose this is this is in a way the uh, the converse of my earlier question about whether what we've seen from Trump has emboldened uh, uh, people to engage in what I would view as anti-democratic uh, behavior. Were the Republican Party to itself uh, espouse a stronger commitment to uh, institutions and norms that one might think of as consistent with democratic values would that bolster popular support for those same institutions and values? Um, and, okay. and well, actually, Julie, go ahead and then, and, and Seth's been sitting very quietly, but yes. go ahead, Julie, and then we'll go to Seth in a bit. <laughs> now, now everyone sees how Seth suffers in our when, uh, conversations, our Zoom calls about <laughs> our, our shared research agenda. Um, so the, I just wanted to say quickly that for whatever reason, I, I see Republicans, elected Republicans, particularly in Congress, as kind of not having demonstrated that capacity for whatever reason. Some have tried. Um, it's not obvious to me how much purchase they have, but who really actually seems to matter is like people in the conservative media universe. I think people in that situation have, um, have more, more clout and more power and the things that they say can, can matter. That's, you know, if I, if this, if my project somehow were to be to, to reintroduce a rule of law across all ideologies, I think that would be the group that I would work hardest to. God, I hope I hope you're wrong because that 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 is even more disturbing because who, to whom are they to whom are they in the media accountable other than uh, a media market already whipped up in its uh, lack of commitment to these same norms and institutions that yeah. that so thanks for frightening me um, uh, Seth are you going to make me feel better now probably not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You know, I have to say that there's a long history of, uh, of moroseness in the Masket family, and I, I really thought I was exempt <laughs> from that until until fairly recently. And I'm I'm just I'm, I'm kind of given into it lately. But um, uh, yeah, this in some ways goes back to what Julia was talking about earlier about you know sort of the you know there's a long history of institutional distrust um, within the Republican Party. I mean, you know, Reagan was campaigning against government, you know, saying government was the problem 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, the, the current crop of Republican elected officials, you know, growing up with that as, as kind of the model, as, as kind of the, you know, the, the sort of main style of rhetoric. But there's, there are some instances where some in the party have pushed back on that a bit. Um, Julia and I, a few years ago, we you know, collectively reviewed um, uh, Bob Woodward's book, Fear, um, and you, there are a couple of really interesting conversations within that book where, you know, sometimes more privately, um, you have people within Trump's cabinet or people within his inner circle saying, you really shouldn't say this, or you really shouldn't demonize the Fed, or, you know, they're all, you, know you shouldn't demonize reporters. There are all sorts of problems when you do that. And 
it, and for the most part, they're not very successful in convincing him to, to change his strategy. Sometimes they can distract him for a while or, you know, they can reshuffle items on his desk and take things off it and, you know, just to, to try to protect institutions. But it's been very hard to get him to change his mind on things. Um, I have this idea for a, a piece I haven't yet written, but, uh, you know, this idea that over the last four years, basically, um, Republicans have taught Trump how to think basically, as a Republican, and uh, while well, he's taught them how to speak, um, that, you know, they, there's been a certain amount of rhetoric that has, was mostly just flowing from him four years ago that others within the party have largely embraced, that is very anti-institutional and, uh, you know, not very consistent with the rule of law. And so, you know, it's, it's been kind of a symbiotic relationship, but they are, they are learning from each other. Although, again, I want to jump in here and point out that this sort of anti-institutional rhetoric i'm very like i'm very in this headspace because i've been watching mrs america on hulu <laughs> and, um and i also in you know in another life spent a lot of time in the uh the ford library in the papers from like the 76 through 80 all those intra-party fights and so i've actually seen these documents it's not just i'm not just experiencing them through through kate blanchett um but the you know, these sorts of anti-institutional pieces of, of rhetoric have been a part of the conservative movement for a long time, which Seth already said, I'm just, I'm just pointing out the various documents associated with that. Um, can I recommend uh, something to read to your listeners? Sure. Um, so there's a scholar named Steve Tellis who has a new book out about never Trump Republicans. Um, we interviewed him on, on my podcast, uh, <laughs> Politics in Question, and you know, he's written about never Trump Republicans. And it's a, it's a nice read the book and it just goes through the different types of never Trump Republicans specifically in 20, in 2016. So I've been thinking a lot about that work um, and about what the never Trump Republican um, faction means and is like, and that's where I, you know, I started thinking about this media thing. I actually started thinking about it back in 2016, and this is a very localized view, but in, one thing you might remember about 2016 is that Ted Cruz won the Wisconsin primary. It was pretty uh, late, so it was obvious that the Trump thing was kind of happening, and there weren't that many candidates left. And so it was like, if you, wanted to, if you wanted to defeat Trump, you needed to coordinate around Cruz. Mm-hmm. And Wisconsin Republicans did that. Um, and I think to the outside, a lot of people thought, oh, that the governor at the time, Scott Walker, that it was his endorsement that really mattered. And maybe it mattered to some high level people. But I think the person who swayed the Republican primary voters in the like in the um, wealthy Milwaukee suburbs was Charlie Sykes, who yep. has since kind of left. I, I don't know if he would say he's left the conservative media establishment, but it's since reflected a lot on on conservatism and Trump in particular, but other things. And so he's kind of in league with this group of Republican and former conservative media figures in Bill Crystal, Max yep. Boot. Um, yep. I, I, I listen to the Bulwark uh, podcast almost every day. Do you? Yeah, that's, I haven't listened. They have something about populism, which I'm writing about right now. So I'm going to listen to that. But yeah, so, but you know, the influence of these folks and like what they, who's listening to them, right? Is it, is it just college professors who like are interested in lots of ideas or um, is it, you know, what their, what their reach is and, and how people listen to them? I don't know, but 
I do think that that's the media establishment is a lot of the lifeblood of, of these folks. And it, it stands to reason to imagine, to think about the ways in which congressional politics have actually gobbled up a lot of Republican leaders, right? John Boehner, mm-hmm. Paul Ryan, you know, Congress is not a promising, is not a promising venue for that type of leadership. So just going back a step to your, your mentioning, uh, Charlie Sykes, um, I was listening to the Bulwark podcast, uh, just a couple of days ago when, um, actually just yesterday, uh, I was listening and, uh, James Carville, uh, was on. And one of the things that Carville argued, um, well, he made, he made an argument that's relevant to a question of mine, which is, how can Republicans or conservatives like Charlie Sykes become more influential within the the Republican Party again versus uh, sustaining the dominance of Trumpism? And Carville said one thing that matters is just how, by how much Democrats win this fall. Uh, Carville uh, said he would say the probability, the likelihood of uh, Biden beating Trump, he'd, he'd say is 85%. He's pretty confident uh, that Trump's going to lose. But the question is just how effect, how, how decisive is, is the Democratic defeat? If, if the Democrats take back the White House, but the Republicans uh, retain control of the Senate, Carvel's argument is you don't have Trump, but Trumpism will continue to be a powerful force uh, in uh, the federal government. Uh, but if the Democrats can win more decisively, uh, then that could begin to uh, push Trumpism aside, as I understood Carvel. And so I wonder what each of you thinks might be the answer to the question of how can, if you think of the the Republican Party is having a Trumpist faction, which seems to be dominant in my view right now, versus an anti-Trump faction, which is not. What would it take for the anti-Trump faction within the Republican Party to become stronger? Would it be a decisive defeat of Trump this fall? Would it be something else? Like I've been, at least in odd offline chat with you, peddling this idea that maybe people who are not currently uh, registered as Republicans, be they former Republicans who left after Trump's election or uh, independents who have long been uh, disidentified from either party, but who are opposed to Trumpism. What if they, in some coordinated fashion, try to register in Republican parties in their states to crowd out Trumpists? Are there other approaches? What would it take for uh, the Trumpist faction to be less dominant within the Republican Party? So I was in Iowa uh, on the day of the Iowa caucuses. Um, and I, I had a chance, I met briefly with uh, Joe Walsh, a former representative who was uh, running for president on the Republican ticket. And I just, you know, I just ch- chatted with him for a few minutes, asking him what, what he was expecting to see. And he said that he's based, he was in this to prove, you know, he wasn't expecting to win he was trying to show that there was at least another voice in the Republican party, that there was space for something other than Trump to exist. Um, and he said he was, he was really hoping for about 10% of the vote. Um, and that would be enough to demonstrate that there's, there's room for other voices. 
Um, he ended up with like 1%. You know, Trump got like 99% of the Iowa caucus vote. Um, it was pretty similar throughout the remaining primaries and caucuses. Um, so, you know, there was, I, I think, something of an attempt. Uh, you know, you had like basically three pretty solid former Republican office holders running for, for presidency and just got no attention from their party. Um, you know, so the, the party did what it could to demonstrate that we're all in with Donald Trump right now. What could be done, you know, if, you know, if as Carville suggests that, you know, uh, uh, Biden wins this fall. Um, so I just, you know, I, I just finished a book on um, how post-election narratives influence the party afterwards. And, you know, I was looking at how, um, you know, how people within the Democratic Party were influenced by arguments about why Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 and how that affected their thinking for 2020. Um, it's called Learning from Loss. Look for it on bookstands this fall, if bookstands exist. Um, and I, uh, you know, should Donald Trump lose this fall, there, there'll be a similar kind of dialogue within the Republican Party about like, well, you know, how much did he lose by and why did that happen? I can imagine there would be a, a pretty substantial group within the party that simply says, we were heading for a re-election, but it was just this virus. And, uh, you know, it wasn't our fault. This would have happened to anyone. Um, you know, what are you going to do? But, you know, if it's if it's also a pretty, a pretty substantial drubbing, I'm sure there'll be some trying to make the argument that it didn't need to be this way. Um, part of it was, you know, it was not a skilled policy response. We could have mitigated some of the problems of this virus and maybe saved uh, saved our control of the White House. Um, and maybe it was just people's rejection of who Trump was and the kind of rhetoric he used. And um, if we were to go with a little more of a of a mainstream, uh, you know, democracy embracing candidate, we could have gotten, you know, not necessarily an overwhelming vote, but like enough to keep us from losing the White House, which is actually a pretty rare thing to happen. Um, so there, I, there will be a debate if that happens within the Republican Party. Um, and it's not obvious to me who will win. Um, but that will certainly be a, you know, huge part of the dialogue going into 2024. Um, should Trump lose this fall. Of course, I think Trump will also be a major candidate in the 2024 race should he lose uh, this year. Um, so I'll be curious to see how that how that argument plays out. So I think there's two things going on here, and I'm not entirely sure how they fit together. The first one is that I think, you know, looking at this in contemporary context, that if these primaries had started in March, that we might have, you know, Joe Walsh might have won 10% and Bill Weld might have won 10% and, and Mark Hanford might have won 10 or whatever, right? Th those, one of those three candidates or all three might have gotten some traction. As, as Seth points out, they were all high quality candidates by, you know, our basic probably assigned measures. Um, and I think that if this primary, like I said, if it had kicked off in March and then was sort of underway in, in April, um, that you might really have had a case for why you might want an alternative to Trump in the White House. In, you know, in the, the point at which these candidates were launching their, their bids and the point at which people really start to tune in in January, February, last December, the Republican argument for being at least temporary Trumpist was very strong, right? They got, they got a tax bill when they, had, when they had control of Congress, Trump's delivering on immigration, stock market's good, economy's good, you know, is like a lot, I think there are a lot of Republican elites and, and in the electorate are like, do we love his tweets? No. 
but they're not, you know, they're not necessarily super concerned about it because things are going okay. I think if you had these, these conditions, um, you know, the, the economy is collapsed and there's this pandemic that the administration doesn't know how to handle, then you get somebody um, like, like Sanford or, or Wells who's like, hey, I've been a governor. Um, and that starts to actually make sense. Um, and again, I don't know if they would beat Trump, but it would be a presence. But there's no incentive for, there's no incentive for an anti-Trump faction over the last couple of years, because despite the fact that the administration has been really unconventional, it's, it's been successful, I think, by your sort of standard measures for what you might want if you were a, a partisan and a person who's invested in Republican economic priorities. Um, that being said, my broader, the- my broader sense about how factions work is this. I think those of us who, who talk for a living and who write for a living desperately want there to be policy factions in the Republican Party. And we want to say, look, Trumpism is anti-immigration, it's isolationist, it's talk, it, you know, it's talk about workers and protectionism, and anti-Trump Republicanism is, you know, freedom of movement is more libertarian economic philosophy, it's a more um, interventionist foreign policy, you know, whatever. We, we really want to have, a, you know, a clear, um, it's culturally more moderate. We want to have a clear break there. And that's not how this works, I don't think, right? These policy positions are sort of fluid. Trump has really shown that. But also factions, factional politics worked like that maybe up till the New Deal in the, Demo- in the American system in either party. Right now, I think about party factions is like if you're trying to develop a party faction is like, it's like when you're riding on a stationary bike and the resistance is all the way down, like you can run really fast, but you like don't get any traction. And that's sort of what factions are like, right? Like you can say a lot of things, you can talk about, you know, differentiating yourself from your partisan opponents in various ways, but there isn't a lot for you to like kind of glom onto, right? There's not a lot of like what makes you a distinct faction. You know, what do you have to incentivize people to join your faction? Not a lot, right? Not a lot. So factional politics doesn't really, and doesn't really happen along these like ideological lines. Instead, I think what has happened in, to some degree in both parties and prior to Trump, is that Trumpism is about language. This kind of goes back to Seth's point about Trump teaching Republicans how to talk, right? If Trumpism is about language, it becomes very fluid and very, you know, in a way, very insidious, right? Because you can vote a certain way if you're a member of Congress, but you can adopt Trumpian language or you can reject it strategically, right? Either way. Um, But it isn't really linked to anything, right? You can say, oh, the media are the enemy of the people or the Democrats are the enemy of the people or whatever. And then you kind of do whatever the hell you were doing when you were initially elected in 1986. That's, um, similarly, you can reject, and we've seen this happen in Congress, right? You reject the sort of Trump norms breaking discourse. You know, I'm not a Trumpy Republican and then vote for all of his proposals and all his nominees. Mr. President... I will vote to confirm Judge Kavanaugh. Thank you, Mr. President.
Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, Stephen Breyer, Supreme Court justices, both in their 80s. Recent story came out about Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, in the hospital, and my social media feed was filled with progressive uh, anxiety. Yep. Even though, as I understand it, uh, compared to Republicans, Democratic voters have not uh, weighted the the court as substantially in presidential uh, votes. Uh, I wonder if, as we approach this fall, whether you think that the salience of those two justices uh, and the prospect of Trump appointing their replacements if he's reelected will factor in uh, uh, the minds more heavily than in typical election years in, in the minds of Democrats. Uh, and, and in particular, Democrats who aren't that enthusiastic by default about Joe Biden. I mean, I would, I would think it would have some effect. You know, a preoccupation on the Supreme Court uh, for presidential voting has, has been kind of a, a hallmark of republicanism for, you know, 40 plus years at this point. Um, that's, you know, that's obviously tied into the abortion debate, but a lot of other issues. And I would think um, there's certainly reasons for Democrats to, to really focus on that right now, that, you know, the consequences of who wins in 2020 will weigh very heavily on what the court looks like uh, over the next several decades. Um, but that logic also works for Republicans as well. You know, they can see, you know, they can point to a couple of, uh, very close calls by the Supreme court and say, we don't, we shouldn't have these close calls. Um, if we can win the, if we can win the white house this time around, we can get Ginsburg's seat. Um, you know, we can get Breyer's seat. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the stakes are there for both parties. Um, it would be interesting to see, you know, I, I can certainly imagine a world in which it becomes much more salient for Democrats uh, than it has been in the past. Um, you know, the, the ingredients for that are all there. But, uh, you know, Republicans just have had an advantage on this issue for a while now that, um, um, I don't know, it'll, 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 it'll just be interesting to, to pan out. The ingredients are there for it, but um, I guess I'll be surprised if we actually see the same amount of prioritization for both parties on that. So I think that what has really changed the game is not Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was older and not in great health in 2016. And it's not even so much stuff like Roe v. Wade, although I certainly expect to see that language and that will mobilize some voters, right? What I think, if there's anything that changed the game, what I think it will be is the Kavanaugh hearings. That, I mean, that is a moment and people, I don't know if this has been your experience for either of you in your classes, but my students talk about that. You know, I, I all fall in, um, well, in it, it, it's, it's easy to forget given the focus of my podcast, but I'm not a political scientist, so I don't teach uh, political science. It doesn't come up uh, in my classes, but okay. Well, it, I don't know what you're, you teach at a small campus though. So I don't know what your students might just come to class and say, right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, that's been, I also, the real difference here, I think is that I probably get. I get a lot of female students and they talk yeah. to me about gender issues. Right. Yeah. And that, you know, really resonated with female students of mine and it really pissed them off. And that, again, I don't want to overstate the salience of it. And obviously it was a moment where it felt like there was a lot of pushback against what was happening in Congress and then it didn't matter. But I think that feeling probably also stayed with people. 
But that is a moment where I think there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of moments that you could use in ads and there's a feeling of kind of this matters, this more visceral for a lot of, particularly maybe younger women um, in a way that doesn't resonate the same way as like, here is a decision that might affect you. That for whatever reason, that seems to me the way that people think. And it, it really reframes the issue of, of Supreme Court appointments and makes it seem real. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Julia Azari and Seth Maskett for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on them and the topics we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode. To provide feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can, if you are a Twitter user, mention Tatter using the handle at tatter underscore rags, or if you use Apple Podcasts, you can post a review and a rating there, or to offer more private feedback, you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. In any case, and as always, thanks for listening, wash your hands, and be well.